2: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Miller, your host today, along with my partner, retired orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Mankin. We also host the popular medical podcast, Pure Spectrum. Today's guest is former U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal. A retired four-star general with 34 years of service, Stanley was the commander of all U.S. and coalition forces in Afghanistan from 2009 to 2010. Before this, he served as commander of JSOC, or the Joint Special Operations Command, overseeing the military's most elite units, including Delta Force and SEAL Team 6. According to journalist Sean Naylor in his book, Relentless Strike, McChrystal was, quote, the general whose vision and intensity transformed JSOC into a global manhunting machine, unquote. Under his direct command, this includes the capture of Saddam Hussein and the killing of the infamous terrorist Abu Masab al-Zarqawi. Today, Stanley is founder and CEO of the strategic consulting firm, the McChrystal Group. He is also a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. His new book is A Risk, A User's Guide. It was published by Penguin Random House in October of 2021. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. And today it's um, our privilege and our honor to have retired General Stanley McChrystal with us. Stan, welcome to the show. This is Friday afternoon. This is exciting to have you.
2: Well, it's exciting to be on. Thanks for having me.
1: We have to start. We're still in COVID here. Tell us what Crimson Contagion was. This is a pretty good jumping off point, I think.
2: Yeah, Crimson Contagion should be a source of embarrassment for the United States. In 2019, the Department of Health and Human Services did an exercise. It was actually four exercises that were all under the name Crimson Contagion. And the idea was to test America's preparation in the face of a potential pandemic, because we know historically that threat emerges inevitably. And the scenario may sound familiar to you. An American traveler goes to China, flies back to the United States, lands in Chicago. His son picks him up the traveler doesn't feel well. So the traveler goes home, but the son has interacted with his father. And then the son goes to a rock concert. And of course it goes from there and half a million Americans die. And Crimson Contagion ended in the fall of 2019. And an after action report was written, 76 pages, listing a number of things, shortcomings that it had uncovered. And it uncovered shortages and some of the stockages of things like Uh, protective equipment, whatnot. It identified process problems connecting different parts of the public health apparatus in America. And that report should have informed leadership in America to be more prepared. And then COVID-19 arrives, and almost everything that was identified in COVID-19 as weaknesses proves to have been unaddressed and uncorrected as we go into what is now still a pandemic.
1: So I've read about these types of exercises. Who looks at these ordinarily? And and, and, and I guess a bigger question is how do you get the attention of decision makers and policymakers? Because there's a lot of other things pulling for their attention.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. There are two values to these exercises. The first is the people who participate in the exercise, often at the more operational level, lower in an organization, they develop relationships with people in different organizations that they would have to deal with in a, in a crisis. They develop an understanding of how things are supposed to work and can work. And so they develop a lot of good experience that gives you a base. Now, hopefully you get senior members to also participate, but it's often hard to get senior members to participate for any length of time because they've got so many things happening. But if you can, of course, there's great value in that. If you can't get them to participate, then a written set of lessons learned from the organization goes up. Hopefully it's read by senior members and they direct action. Often what happens is those reports go into an inbox or go on a shelf and nothing happens. And we find out that when we have problems later, we knew all about those problems beforehand. We just had been unwilling to act.
0: So do you think there would have been time uh, for them to act on this sort of thing? And is there a level of um, this type of exercise, where people say, "Okay, folks, this is really the fire alarm. We this is really to check," because it seems like between nineteen and twenty is really quick, and some of the things, the store, the um, equipment, and things could have been addressed. Yeah, you certainly
2: could not have fixed all of those uh, mm-hmm. because some of them have a lead time of getting resources or training people but you could have gotten everybody and started the train moving in that direction. And, you know, if you hold these kinds of exercises in a periodic basis, a regular basis, you build up muscle memory or muscle capability in an organization for all crises, because I would argue that the the, uh, challenge caused by a pandemic has a public health and medical side to it, but much of what, is involved, the necessary responses, the ability to communicate well, a clear narrative, the ability to act, they are actually common to any crisis, a big weather event or a financial crisis. Many of the thing organizations must do are the same. And so you build that capability to act. And then, of course, you you modify it for what that particular threat is.
0: Th- this is something that uh, Colin and I were talking about beforehand. Um- sometimes with drills, if you do them enough, they become, oh, this is just the drill. I mean, I've seen that when I was teaching and we'd have a um, a hurricane drill and people would like be laughing and they'd be be scattered all over the place. And then if we had a real hurricane, it's hard to get people to do that. I mean, there is the muscle memory, but um, particularly in the military, your background, how do you get people to say, okay, this is not a drill. This is is something we need to address. We really need to do it right now.
2: Yeah, it's a great thing. How many times have we been in buildings when the fire alarm went off? And did we rush out or did we say, well, it's just a fire alarm going off, must not affect us, particularly if it's inconvenient or cold outside.
1: And if you're in the operating room, you can't leave. I mean, that happens. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
2: I, I was actually having... A few years ago, they did something on my face. They wanted to do a derma thing. And so they put me put some gunk on my face. and They put me under this blue light for a certain amount of time. And they said, you can't be under here too long. So we're going to come out and get you so it doesn't do anything harmful. While I'm under, suddenly the building has a bomb threat. This is the hospital at Fort Belvoir. And I'm sitting under this thing and I don't know whether to leave and go out or stay under here and everybody leaves. And I think, you know, they're going to come back and I'm going to be toasted. (laughs) Uh, So obviously you got to learn to react, but I think that you've got to have a discipline in an organization. Think of it. It is like uh, working contingency plans or doing security things for cybersecurity. There are a number of things you have to do as a matter of discipline, even though 364 days of the year, it doesn't matter because you're not getting breached the day you don't do it obviously always aligns with the day when that happens. So I would argue organizations need a discipline to them to be effective at this.
1: Stan, we're going to get in your book here. And I asked you earlier before we got started, you know, we could talk about this a little bit and you brought it up in your book. You you had a spine procedure <laughs> and I think there's some lessons there and areas we can explore. Tell us about this, what happened and, um, and take us through your thought process of how you decided as a patient what treatment you're going to agree to.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I have had a number of orthopedic surgeries. At that point, I had had seven orthopedic surgeries before that, two back surgeries, three shoulder, and it doesn't matter. But so I, each time I'd had a successful outcome and each time I'd gotten better after the surgery. So finally, I'm told I need to have spine fusion because it had gotten to the point where, They couldn't fix it any other way, and we delayed it long enough. So I went to a very noted physician in New York City, very well-known guy. He'd actually operated on the son of a friend of mine, and the son was a very uh, effective college football player, and the guy had gone out to play. So I'd I'd lined up all the things to say I got to go to a good hospital with great people, great track record. And then we sat down, and he took me through. He says, okay, we're going to fuse your spine. There's already some scar tissue in there from previous things. So we got to work through that. But otherwise, pretty straightforward. And he said, I've done like 4,000 of these. And the outcome's been good, you know, pretty much. And he, he gave me some numbers. He said, some other percentage of all the ones done in the nation, that's X percentage of time, there's this or that problem. And I heard that. And I said, well, I'm easily in the the 98 you know, percent luckiest part of America. So I like the odds. Yeah, we're good. And then, of course, I had the operation and complications come not long after the operation. I'd have two subsequent operations, which opened me up completely and whatnot. And I remember thinking afterward, did I get it wrong? Was I cavalier? Did I not listen? Actually, I did listen when he told me. I just did the calculation that says, yeah, it happens occasionally, but I'm not in the occasional. And so I don't think I made a wrong decision, went to good people and whatnot, but it it reminded me that if something happens 10% of the time, one out of 10 times, it actually does happen. And so you have to, you have to understand that probability does come up with mathematical precision.
1: Is there anything you would have done differently?
2: That's a great question. Um, probably not. I mean, in, in retrospect, I might've gone to a different doctor, but I actually think I went to the best doctor I could find. Extraordinary guy. So, I think unless I absolutely knew I was going to have complications there, I think we did it about right, but I would have thought about it differently i I would have been more mentally prepared for the fact that x percentage of the time there are challenges
0: yeah and this this goes back to the whole concept of the risk assessment too. Um, do you feel like you were prepared for what the ramification of that one, that 1% of the time or that 10% of the time was, did, did you think you asked enough questions to know what the complications would be like?
2: No, I didn't because I sort of wished away that I said, if it happens, that would be bad. And how often do we do that? We say, well, someone says, well, what if X happens? And you go, well, if that happens, it would suck. And you don't really say, well, if that happens, what are we going to do? Sometimes I deal with businesses now and I say, well, what if this very significant threat emerges and, and they go, well, well, we'll just be, we'll be screwed. And I go, well, okay, but you will be, but what are you gonna do? You're not gonna you know, uh, just make the company go away. You're not gonna quit. You are gonna have to do something. So you better think through, even if it's unthinkable, what you're gonna do in that moment of the unthinkable. And that gets to the idea of preparing an organization for for the idea that things are sometimes gonna happen that are very, very disorienting. And if you think about it, it happens to families. You're in a family and suddenly a valued member of the family gets a health problem, suddenly comes down with something that's life-threatening or life-changing. Um, my, my brother-in-law, I had a stroke about six months ago and that's life changing. And it didn't just change his life. It's changed the entire extended family. And so, but life goes on, you have to adapt to it. And so what, what I think is key is developing this ability to know that even if a number, a string of unthinkable things happen, life will go on and we're going to deal with it. And so we're going to have to keep adapting. We're going to have to keep taking uh, the necessary action to move forward.
1: I want to ask this before we jump on. This is, this is uh, kind of getting off track a little bit, but we're, it's Friday. And just earlier this week, we lost Colin Powell. Yeah. Tell us personally your interactions with him and maybe some thoughts, if you'd like to share that with, with our audience.
2: When I was young, my father was an Army officer and um, he told me the story. He was... Uh, a major general at the time, and he had a a directorate in the Pentagon. And a young officer was assigned to the Pentagon and put in a a job that was not very fulfilling. So that young officer came to my father, who was operating a pretty high, uh, uh, high pressure job, but a good one for an army officer, and asked if my father would give him a job. And that was Colin Powell. And my father did. And then a few months after that, the officer colin powell got an opportunity to be a white house fellow now he came to my father and he said i asked you for a job and now after only a few months i've got an opportunity to leave but i feel like i owe you the loyalty to stay here and then when my father told the story he goes i absolutely shook him on the hand congratulated him and i said go and i said well why did you want to give up that kind of talent? He said, I didn't want to give up that kind of talent, but I wanted people who considered coming to work for me to know that if they got a better opportunity, I was here to help them, not to constrain them. And I didn't even really know about Colin Powell, what he was going to be, because he was still relatively junior. Then when General Powell became senior, became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and and jobs, I got to watch him. I was a major at the time, and I got to interact, But I'd be this the backbencher in a, in a briefing and whatnot, when I was in uh, a job in special operations. And then after he retired, as he left the secretary of state job, and I went to Afghanistan as the commander, General Powell reached out to me. He just first sent me an email and then he gave me a call. And he just, a couple of times he was sort of chiding me. He says, why did you do that? (laughs) And I guess he thought because of the relationship with my father that I wanted the, the advice and at first I resented it, but then I actually realized I did want the advice because he wasn't just saying a hey, good job or whatever. He saying, hey, I've been there, buddy. You need to think about this. And then of course, after I retired from the military, we became friends and did some things together. And he was always a role model. He was always a mentor. And when we think of the road he traveled, You know, I was from a military family. I went in and uh, I I don't say it was an easy road, but it was a pretty smooth road. When he was a young captain, he and his wife Alma went to Fort Benning, Georgia, for training. He couldn't get a motel room in Columbus, Georgia, because he was African-American. Now, here is a Vietnam veteran captain, and he can't stay at a motel in Columbus, Georgia. And we sometimes forget about things like that. And so when you get a person who, who does all he did and his road was a lot more challenging than anything I ever marked, moved on.
1: So something a little more lighthearted, but um, when I was growing up, especially in, in the 90s, I would get called Colin a lot, even though my name's pronounced Colin. And I'd find this a little bit annoying because it sounds pretty much like a body part. And uh, <laughs> But I always wondered why Colin Powell went by Colin. And I didn't know that this until this week. So it turns out his parents pronounce his name just like my parents pronounce my name, but sometime in grade school, he read a story about a world war II bomber pilot who it's an amazing story in and of itself, but he died just about a week after Pearl Harbor. He was in the Philippines and he went down with the plane, getting his other guys out the parachute saved, the, you know, his crew and one of the first casualties or fatalities of, um, World War Two, so he heard that story and he said, "All right, I'm colon now." (laughs) So that's I got to give it to him. That's a that's a pretty good reason. (laughs) All right, so moving on here, let's talk about the risk immune system. It's it's certainly uh, an interesting analogy to use, especially right now where we're sitting. Tell us about this. What how do you define this?
2: Yeah, a number of years ago, a brilliant Yale immunologist uh, came to my office at Yale and said. I think that the human immune system is like counterinsurgency. And I said, what? What are you talking about? You know, where are you coming from? And she says, I'm an immunologist. I don't know counterinsurgency, but I know you did this. And I just, it strikes me that they're similar. So we started this collaboration. We ended up doing this briefing together. And she was exactly right. If we think about the human immune system, it's this miracle. Because about 10,000 times a day they estimate our body is assaulted by a microorganism that can make us sick or could kill us. And yet we don't get up in the morning worried about our human immune system. We don't try to get it going, please get going. Because it automatically detects the threats, it assesses whether they are dangerous to us, it responds to them destroying most of them, and then it learns from it. And it does this constantly. And we just take it for granted. Think about our, our organizations. You know, we often think about the threats that are around the corner or over the hill or unknown to us, and we worry about them. It's, we hear howling in the night, and, and so we focus on those external things. But in reality, what's most important and what's most under our control is our immune system, our ability to deal with that. To detect those threats as they come, to assess them, whether they're dangerous to us, to respond to them, and learn to be better next time. So what we, in the book, we drew the analogy with 10 risk control factors that make up this risk immune system that any organization and a nation or society is no more than a big organization. And they are things like communication, how well do you communicate? The narrative, do we all tell the same story about ourselves? Are we aligned on who we are and why we are? Are we able to act when we need to, to overcome inertia? Do we get the timing right? Do we know when to do things and when not to do things? Are we adaptable when we need to be? Can we take account of our biases because we've got them? Do we use diversity effectively to close our blind spots? Is there leadership in place that pulls all of this together? So if you think about this risk immune system, it's pretty internally focused. It makes us what we would call risk fit, more resilient. And as we talked earlier, most of the reactions to a a crisis or a threat are the same crisis to crisis. So if you're in good risk fit condition, you're gonna be able to respond far more effectively regardless of whether you're completely surprised by the threat that emerges or whether it's something you've seen for quite a long time.
1: Is it too early to grade our response to COVID as a country? And how, what's your assessment so far? I mean-
2: Yeah, it's not too early. Um, in fact, we started this book a month before COVID arrived. We had no idea it was going to become a major part of the book, but it did because it's an absolute proof- of the thesis that we have. And our thesis is the greatest risk to us is us. It's our own inability and unwillingness. So let's talk about COVID-19. You know, COVID-19 is a novel coronavirus. There's nothing novel about it. There's novel to its particular strain, but you know, viruses come all the time with frightening regularity and pandemics even come with regularity. So they are inevitable. And so we know it's coming. The second thing is we know what to do about it. We have a body of public health experience that we literally know there's a playbook. Here's how you handle something like this. So we've got, we know it's coming and we know what to do about it. And oh, and this time we pulled a medical miracle. We produced vaccines faster than any time in the history of mankind. So actually, Keith, you and I ought to be having this celebratory conversation right now going, we kicked its butt. You know, this COVID 19 showed up and we slapped it away. And we, this United States, 50 connected states pulled together, we stopped it and we didn't. We dropped the ball, and more than 700,000 of our fellow citizens have died. When I would argue a small fraction of that really would have died had we gotten it right. So, what did we get wrong? The answer is an awful lot. Our communication from the beginning wasn't effective to all of our population. It wasn't effective internationally, but I'm gonna focus internally. We didn't tell a clear story that people then had faith in. And as soon as people started not to trust the sources of information, we started to make the problem worse. The second is we didn't have a clear narrative. I mean, the clear narrative should have been, this is the perfect enemy. Nobody can like COVID-19. So there's no sympathy for the enemy. We should have been unified by this, and it should have been a wartime narrative. We are a nation at war. We must protect each other. We are all part of the defense. There were actions that had to be taken. And the thing I've learned about uh, pandemics is you have to act before the problem is obvious to every uh, member of the nation. Because if you don't get in front of exponential growth, then you're chasing it. So if you wait until a whole bunch of people are sick, you got a big problem. So it's a little risky for decision-makers because they've got to do things that might be unpopular or might be expensive before the average American, let's say, says, we better do something. You know, in fact, a lot of people might be saying, why are we doing this? Why did you cancel St. Patrick's Day? You know, we've only got two people sick in the city. So, and then we had to get the timing, right? We had to do that, we had to be willing to adapt we needed leadership, and when I talk about leadership, I don't mean just at the national level. You know, I think we had uneven leadership at the national level—some good, some bad, but not good enough in in average. But then across our society, it's been uneven as well. There've been some real bright spots. There have been some people who have just stood up and been amazing, but not enough. And so we fought COVID nineteen as fifty separate states or maybe hundreds of separate municipalities, and none of them was strong enough to fight it. And so we've been defeated in detail. And truth be known, we're still being defeated on a daily basis. We're gonna grind our way through it at the end, but it's not gonna be a source of pride. Hopefully it will be a source of wisdom.
0: Right. So um, uh, the question about communication and the narrative it's ironic we have arguably more communication than we've ever had, and yet it's so difficult. I mean, it was out of our hands almost before the pandemic started, the, the uh, false communication, the false narrative. There may not be an answer to this, but is there anything that can be done about that?
2: Yeah, You're, you've nailed maybe the most critical part of this thing. In the book, we go through four tests of communication. And it's a good reminder to people first test is can you physically communicate can you get your message from a to b the second test is are you willing to do it will you release the information will you communicate the third is is the information timely and accurate true and then the last is is the receiver able to understand it do they speak that language are their ears open are they ready to take it in if the answer to all four tests isn't yes then you're not communicating effectively and you've got a real vulnerability. I think that this time what happened was we we couldn't pass those tests. And then as misinformation, which I categorize as unintentional wrong information and disinformation, which is intentional wrong information, as they began to compete and they could do it very efficiently now because information technology, social media and whatnot allows information to go at almost no cost. Uh, Suddenly, who knows what's right and what's wrong? And we got into the psyche of the American population, true in other places as well, and it made us extraordinarily unable to align on a narrative, unable to align our actions. But we ought to pay attention because we shouldn't say, wow, this pandemic, once it's gone, we don't have to worry about that for a while. If we have a cyber attack, if we have a financial crisis, the same thing, the misinformation and disinformation will be of a different nature, but it will have the same effect. And so I think it's, a, it's as close to an existential threat to the American democracy in our society as I can imagine.
1: So I could ask you a lot of questions about this, but I'm going to go to something in your background. There's all sorts of issues about freedom of speech and private companies, but- Let's take the military. Tell us what social media, the role of social media has in the military, how that's changed things. And yeah. if you have control just as a battalion commander of yeah. what your, your troops are doing, what they're not doing, what they're using, what would you do to combat this misinformation, disinformation through certain
2: channels? Yeah. It's an interesting question because just in my career, all that changed when I was young, particularly when you were deployed, you were dependent upon the information the military gave you. Even as late as the first Gulf War, when we all went over to Saudi Arabia, they shut the phones off and there weren't cell phones and whatnot. So you couldn't communicate home and you only got letters uh, to you. So it was all, and they were censored. So it was all very controlled. And then there was an, an incident a, an AC 130 gunship was shot down over a place called Taji in early 1990, uh, early 1991, right before the ground war. And what happened was a bunch of people who were in that unit called home and they called home with good intentions because they knew that the downing of the plane had become reported. They called their family and they said, honey, I just want to call and tell you that I'm okay. Well, of course, the 13 crew members killed, their families didn't get calls. So it became a very cruel way for them to find out, you know, by omission before the air force was able to come and with a chaplain and a a leader and do that. So it turned out to be a real eye opener. And so they put out a bunch of things. They said, okay, more discipline. We can't do that. It's just too cruel to families. Fast forward after 2001 and we started to have cell phones and suddenly The first thing you do is you say, well, I'm going to take all the cell phones. The unit's going to control. them." Well, that doesn't work. And now you have soldiers who can call back in the middle of an operation. They literally could go on operation. and They could call home. A couple of things happen. One is you're worried about them calling home. And that didn't turn out to be the big problem. The big problem is the soldiers there in the combat zone and the wife calls and says, you know, the dog is sick. The car is broken and someone stole the washing machine. Suddenly the soldier is trying to deal with the realities of one world and at the same time fight a war, which is really hard. Commanders found that they, they couldn't stop that, they had to compete with that. And so information flows, rumors flow, misinformation flows. And so commanders have got to understand, they now got to communicate much more aggressively because they've got to communicate with information that's incorrect. And, you know, rumors go in an army like they do anywhere. It's, it gets out of control. And so it's created a new dynamic and not, in my mind, a very healthy one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've actually been in the operating room where I've gotten some information. I will not go too much detail about this, but something that where I'm told, tell the surgeon after the case, but not right now could just be something that's going to piss them off, but it also could be something family related. And, and I've done that before or use my own judgment because you don't want to break their, their, their train of focus. I cannot imagine though, being out in a, in a, in the field and doing FaceTime with your kids. And then all of a sudden mortar yeah. attacks start. That's, that's just. Right. That's incredible. Do you think there's a solution to this? Is it a special cell phone that's secured by a military network? I mean, what, what are they looking at?
2: I'm not aware that they're looking at anything right now. I'm sure that there are are different ideas of, of having people turn in their cell phones or give them special things, but I'm not aware of anything. You know, I think all information technology is something that's gotten ahead of us. It is more advanced than we are mature as a society. We can communicate faster than we can think. And we often do. And so I would argue that we don't know how powerful social media is. Instagram, the effect it has on people, different things. Um, I would argue that until we mature to catch up with that, we're going to be at real risk.
0: Yeah. I might be a little naive about this, but uh, in medicine, we went through a phase where we didn't tell the patient anything or we selectively told the patient what was going on. In fact, in my lifetime was the advent of um, of informed consent, which Stan, you know, well, too, too well. Um, but nowadays, it, it doesn't make sense. Of course, we're going to tell people things Um Is there a why is it a bad thing necessarily that the leadership has to communicate with the men in the field or they have to do it more effectively? Is it could this lead to something that's actually a better communication and better uh, organization of of the troops?
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree, Keith. It's not all bad. There's a lot good because it it forces the leadership to do that. The problem is sometimes there's so much of it that the leadership is distracted. It's okay if you are communicating effectively and down, but what if political stuff starts getting in there or very damaging rumors and things like that? You could find the leadership spending an extraordinary amount of time dealing with things that are otherwise irrelevant to the mission. So it's it's a scale amount, I, I think.
1: So talk about learning lessons. Something you mentioned is the after action review. It, the best thing I've got is when I was playing high school football, watching films, but there's, there's nothing like what you talk about in the book with, with JSOC and, and military units. Um, and I see some parallels here. There's a debate right now about putting cameras in the operating room, for example, or in patient care areas. Obviously there's a lot of benefit in learning, but there's also a lot of fear and trepidation about this. Um, as, as much as you can, I know there's some things you can't talk about. I, just what we see in the news. Many of these operators do have cameras on their helmets. There's drones overhead filming. You've got eyes all over the place. As much as you, you're able to talk about it, take us through one of these after action reviews with a team. And I can only imagine there's an emotional component to this. I mean, you, what you're watching is, 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 is violence. It's something that most warriors and soldiers through history never got a chance to see again. And sometimes we'd rather just put behind them. Take us through one of these, because I think there's some things we can explore that are broader to the rest of society. Yeah. Uh,
2: First, I would state something that you will have a number of people in a firefight, a small battle. And you say, well, I was in the firefight. I know what happened. And the answer is you were in the firefight. You know what happened to you. And your memories, as we've proven time and again, is often inaccurate. And so you take, let's say there are a hundred guys in the firefight, there are a hundred different perspectives of what happened, a hundred different versions of why things happened a certain way or why they didn't. So the first thing an after action review seeks to do is it gets as close to an accurate picture of what happened as possible. And so it involves bringing all the participants, interviewing them, bringing them into a moment where people usually in time sequence go through an operation and they first try to establish, okay, these are sort of the facts and they're never completely, but it's really important because other people will walk away, you know, they will have derived conclusions based upon things that were completely wrong. Nowadays, because of things like the predator, the unmanned aerial vehicles give you full motion video from above 10,000 feet, typically, you'll have a high resolution video of what happened on the ground. And anything that's not undercover, you will see because you see every soldier moving around and whatnot. So we started by seeing that. Then we had helmet cams, but we didn't put those on until further into the war. And there was a lot of mixed feeling about that because every operator, just like every policeman, is worried that they're going to be second guess for everything they did. We had a case where we were in the middle of the war and we did an operation and it was in Iraq. And I got uh, called by one of the organizations that flew the unmanned air vehicles and the organization was actually operating out of Kuwait. Uh, And but they called up and they said, we think we have a war crime. And I said, they said, we think we saw a war crime by one of your guys. So immediately we start investigating it. And I looked at the feed and one of our operators is moving and there's a guy in front of him on all fours. And suddenly you see our operator back up about two feet and use his carbine and shoot the guy. And you look at that and you go, wow, guys on all fours and our operator shot the guy. So we. We bring him in and we, we go to get other witnesses because you, you got to get to the bottom of that right away. What we found out was from another guy watching that the guy on all fours had a weapon that you couldn't see from above, was taking that weapon up to shoot. And the reason the guy backed up is he suddenly saw it and he was kind of like, whoa, and shot. So it was the right action to do. But, but there was always concern that people from 10,000 feet were going to say, you did the wrong thing. And we have to have a certain humility that says a two dimensional view, even a video is very rarely the whole story of what happened. And you've got to be able to try to gather more to find it out. But back to the after action review that the key thing is, after you've gotten as close to reality of what happened, you start to say, okay, what did we want to have happen differently than what happened? What should we have done better? What do we have to correct? This can get very emotional. I've been in hmm. after-action reviews where fists were thrown. Um, people call each other names because sometimes you are saying, Keith, you completely screwed that up. And, you know, in combat, it means you screwed that up. And because of that, Colin died. Well, I mean, that gets pretty raw pretty quickly. But you've got to get to that kind of thing because you gotta, you got to get to what? You have to fix before the next time. So after action reviews, you have to set up the right environment for them. Yeah, it should be controlled. It should be run by trusted people. It should be very as professional and disciplined as you can, because otherwise it will quickly devolve into a shouting match. Or if you let people get away with saying things that aren't true, that they want to convince other people were the case, then obviously you're just, not getting to the the root of it, so there's a real art to doing these well, and doing a doing them regularly helps build up that capability.
1: So, not only I mean you're talking about potential war crimes, other things, but it's also it's it's your career too, right? I mean, if something's seen, I don't I don't know if this is true, but I've heard, especially in the special operations community, there's not a lot of toleration for failures, right? It's, it, you can be out pretty quickly. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, when you're talking about doing these things, right. Does that mean uh, an assumption that this isn't going to be used in that way? Or can you even make a make a yeah. commitment to that? How, how do you handle those concerns?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Different organizations do it differently in the special ops community. We didn't guarantee that we weren't going to use what we saw and said, Because it was important stuff. And so the idea was, if if you find something really wrong, okay. But you do try to create an environment that says, people make mistakes. We're human. So we want to ferret those out. As you probably know, there are accident reports in things like the Air Force and all that protect the anonymity of people or the responsibility so that they get out the full story. They say we're going to do a report and nobody's going to be held responsible because we want to find out what happened. You know, I was on the board of uh, JetBlue Airlines and I was chairman of the safety committee. And there was always this big discussion about cockpit cameras and cockpit recordings and using those because crews didn't want to be second guessed. And I think that's true of bus drivers and everybody else but we are going in that direction. I mean, the reality is there are cameras everywhere. Now there are body cams there. There's tracking of cell phones, the ability to get more information than ever exists. And so I think we're, we're going into a new paradigm on, uh, on being able to assess people's actions.
1: Yeah. I think one of the big resistance points is not wanting to be judged by someone who isn't a peer, whether you're a police officer being judged by someone else in the- the media, or if you're a doctor, having this put out there, you know, even data about your complication rates. It's like, well, nobody can really understand that without some more context to it. Uh, This kind of leads into another question I was was curious about. You're famously known for going on missions, even as a very, very high ranking commander. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe even when you were the allied commander in Afghanistan. Um, I talked to somebody earlier this week who, one of our past guests who, um, who was a SEAL and a doctor and He confirmed this is pretty unusual, actually. Um, You're pretty unique in doing this. I'm curious if you, I'd love it if you could take us through one of these, what what that actually meant if you were hopping on a helicopter in the middle of the night, how much involvement you had. And then the bigger question is, do you really have to have combat experience to be a military leader? We know Eisenhower did not, um, but if you think of the NFL, there's only a handful of exceptions where the coach didn't at least play high school ball. It's hard to imagine that they didn't have some experience. How important is that? But but first, t- take us back to you know, understand a little more about some of these stories we've heard.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's important to be able to be connected with the organization that you're working for. So I would go on operations with regularity. And it wasn't because they needed me on the ground because I wasn't a lot of help. And they were always kind of worried. They they kind of liked having me go, but they were always worried I'd get lost or killed and they'd be responsible. So there was that mixed feeling. We like to see the boss, but you know. But I would go not because I wanted to be, you know, a big hero or something. I would go because you have to go see your people doing their jobs. You have to see them in the context of doing it. Because if you don't, you start to watch it from 10,000 feet. You think you understand what's happening. And then you go on the ground and you realize it's dark, it's cold, it's they're tired. There's all these things, dynamics that are true on the ground that only come with experience of that. And you also have to show them you're willing to go through some of the danger and the privation they do. My guys were most of them were fighting every night because of the way our rhythm was. And so I wasn't out every night but I had to be out often enough to show them that I wasn't gonna ask them to go into danger if I wasn't willing to, to put, it up, put it on the table as well. You, you, you build a, you maintain a credibility uh, with them as, as you do that. I think that combat experience, you say, does a person have to be, you know, combat experience, to, can a non-doctor run a hospital? Right. And I think you can but I think you've got to be able to get yourself close enough to the people actually doing what they do to have an appreciation for it because you're not moving chess pieces around. You are dealing with human beings doing something that's different and you're going to be far better if you have a really deep understanding of it. So I think having the experience on the ground uh, was very, very helpful.
0: Yeah. I know the um, uh, president of a major medical system, um, and, uh, he was offered a, uh, uh, an office in the huge tower and he declined. He wanted the office that he had to walk through the emergency room every day to get to, because every day he was not a doctor, but every day he reminded himself, this is what his people are doing. So I think he thought uh, when, that was a pretty profound thing.
2: Yeah. We worked with one company that once a month, every senior executive basically did customer fielded customer calls complaints and things like that. And you spend a day feeling that you get a sudden appreciation for things that your organization's doing.
1: Here's another question. The military does promote within it, There's really it, no matter how close we are to Great Britain, for example, we're not going to recruit a submarine commander from her majesty's Royal Navy, right? It's just the way things work. Um, there's very strong competitive advantages and disadvantages, I think. And there's companies that set themselves up this way. Um, yeah. In my industry, Striker is an example. Um, there's Goldman Sachs. You know they move people up and and develop leaders from within. Just from what you've learned in the military and then within the Crystal Group and consulting, what are the biggest competitive advantages to this model, and what are the the downsides? Yeah,
2: I think the advantages are you have a system in which you control the professional development of someone. You can start early, you can focus on values, certain behaviors, you control the experiences they've had because you can put people in a variety of jobs. And then there's a connection with people as they rise together. As we become senior in an organization, you typically knew people for 20, 30 plus years and in the special operations community, that was hugely important. Many of the sergeants major had been privates when I was a young captain. So we, we have this long shared experience. Now, having said that, I actually think that guild-like system is more of a vulnerability than a strength. The military starts this idea that you can't be a captain unless you were a lieutenant, can't be a major unless you're a captain and, and so on. And I think it's, it's a problem and I would change it I think there's a certain percentage of people that ought to come in the military and matriculate up, but we ought to have lateral entry all the way up to general officer. Really? And I'm not talking about just being a technical kind of person. I know some CEOs that could come in and be the commander of an infantry division. All they'd have to do is learn to wear the clothes, learn you know, how to salute, that sort of stuff. And you say, well, they haven't had all the experiences. They're problem solvers and they understand how to use people. And if they're good people, they're probably pretty bright and they would bring different ideas. They would bring, hey, why are we doing it that way? The problem in that guild-like is you sand off the iconoclast maybe not intentionally, but you do. You shape everybody up until you get a pretty narrow range of views, pretty serious lack of diversity of thinking and perspective. And so I actually believe in today's world, we should have a very robust lateral entry into the military. And some people like I, you know, Colin, I might say, you go into the military for three years and we want you to go in at this level and do this and then we want you to go back, you know, to whatever you're gonna do. It would be good for the military, but it would also be good to have people going back at that rank into society. Now the reserves and National Guard do part of this, but the reality is, the active military is largely regular military and so you can't consider them all one you you really have to admit that they're sort of three separate silos and i believe in lateral entry to the regular military
1: that's fascinating i never thought of that um are there any other countries you're aware of that have experimented with that
2: uh well you know every country does certain things in big wars and so you see some of that i don't know of a country that does that aggressively I would also change the military academy system. You know, we've got a United States Military Academy for the Army and a Naval Academy and whatnot. I would make those academies be service academies, meaning service, not just military. And there'd still be, in fact, I'd add a couple and I'd have a bunch of people go to them. And then out of each academy, people would go to the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, CIA, State Department, FBI, because 20 years later, those friendships that were made in college would still be around and you'd have connections that you don't have. They'd have been at each other's wedding. And I think we get a huge uh, benefit because you learn the the nuts and bolts of your craft later. You don't come out of West Point a soldier. You don't come out of Annapolis a sailor. You come out a college graduate with a certain bet and then they teach you to be a sailor.
1: Yeah, I'm totally sold on. I've heard you talk about this before, you know, national yeah. service. And I think it would also have the benefit of giving us a shared common experience and part of our narrative that we're we're missing in modern day
0: life. I mean, we really are. Um, but, but it would take all the excitement away from Army-Navy games. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all
1: right, Stan, we're getting really close to the time. There's one question I want to make sure I get in, and then we'll see how many other things we can squeeze in here. You, especially at your level, you had access to some of the most sensitive information in the government. I mean, you were actually generating information that the president is briefed on every morning. Uh, Fast forward from that to as a private citizen today, and there's two set pathways for this question. One, I'm very curious about your process as a private citizen of keeping yourself informed of the world. You know, what kinds of sources do you use? How do you evaluate sources that are in the public domain that Keith and I would also have access to? and I suspect it might be a little different with the crystal group. You may have subject specialty, you know, experts and, and um, maybe conversations that with people that the rest of us may not have, but I'm really curious, just even the mundane, you know, if, if you're just reading Google news or something, I mean, I'm really curious how you are keeping yourself informed today without all those tools that you had access to previously.
2: Yeah. You don't have a staff that curates at all. I do have a, a, uh, a person on our team that pulls together key things that that helps keep me informed because I'm going to be on podcasts or things. But that's that's really just curation. Um, What I do is I use a number of different sources, some key media outlets and whatnot, and I go to those on a daily basis and I check, okay, what's the hot things, and then I delve into certain ones. I am a much more discerning consumer than I was 30 years ago. I learned in the military when people bring you intelligence, particularly secret intelligence, the first thing to do is go, okay, where's this intelligence from? What's the source's track record? You know, you really, because most of it is, you know, spies lie. And so, you know, you start with this great amount of skepticism, or you should. So what I've learned to do for myself is try to triangulate. I I've, I've gotten to unfortunately where I'm assuming almost every news thing I read has got a spin on it whether it's right left or whatever it's got a spin or just poor reporting. Right. And I see an awful lot of poor reporting. <laughs> so I triangulate a bunch of things. I have discussions with people and often I will ask if there's a particular subject that I I've, I've gotten enough information on to be stupid you know, and to to give opinions, but not really know what I'm talking about, I reach out to people and I, somebody who knows a lot more. And I just say, what do you think about this? What is your opinion? And we have a lot of interesting conversations that way, because I don't, I don't consider that I'm up to speed on the big national security issues and all. I don't pretend to be, but I do delve into the things that I think are, well, partially of interest to me and, and of great importance that Sort of everybody ought to know, and and drill in that way.
1: All right, we got a few minutes left. It's so many more questions we're not going to get to, but um, one, the book Risk. I enjoyed it. I I heard you on another interview recently saying this might be the last book you you write, and I've actually heard this from a number of people lately. And maybe it has to do with the publishing industry taste change. One, who do you hope to 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 reach with this, and if not writing another book. How do you reach out to people and contribute to the conversation? Uh, how do you think Great about question. the changing consumption of material yeah. today?
2: I guess that, that's an interesting point. First, I'm not sure that's a burning hunger to hear from Stan McChrystal on every issue in the world. And so I don't think that my opinion on a lot of things is is that important. I like to stay you know, uh, informed, but so... I start with that assumption on the book part, what we were trying to do is make a book that was approachable, meaning, you know, I could write a book on risk and we could get a very academic tome that we have probabilities and things. And I wanted one that people would actually read. I wanted one that business leaders would read and go, OK, you know, the reality is I know the theory of risk, but this is actually how my experience with risk. So what I'm basically arguing is everybody has a much more informal, less structured relationship to risk than we sort of pretend they do. We have risk committees and things, but that's not the way most of us make decisions or organizations. So we're trying to make an approachable book that would tell people that and then tell them, okay, here's what you can do about it. Um, I think it's important for all of us to keep thinking I'm 67 now. Um, Mm. You know, there, there's a time you can stop working, you can stop thinking, you can stop doing whatever you want, but but I'm not ready to, and I don't. I'm not sure I'll ever hit that point. I I think there is. Um, I just know almost a human need to keep educating yourself. At least there should be to to teach yourself things you don't know, and unfortunately, the older I get, the more I realize I don't know.
1: Well, that's the whole point of our uh, effort here, right, Keith? This is why we well, do this. That's um, right. Yeah. And I will disagree with your first assumption. I think people are going to continue to seek you out for counsel and advice. Which it was a real privilege having you here to to, to talk with
2: us today. Obviously, that's why we invited you. Well, what a pleasure to be on with you guys,
1: um, Stan. It's Friday afternoon. I know you've got another interview to go to, so I'll just have to just accept that I can't ask t- twenty more questions. But um, <laughs> uh, Stanley McChrystal again, it's an honor and a privilege. And, and I said this before to some of our, our guests that have served, I really appreciate your service. And I think one thing that we overlook, it's not just your service, but it's your families as well. Um, being a parent of young kids, you miss lots of birthdays, lots of anniversaries, lots of first, you know, baseball, you know, catches and hits. You can't get that stuff back. So thank you for your service and thank you for the service of your family.
2: Well, on behalf of all the families, thanks to you all. That's really appreciated.
1: And that's it. Everybody, whenever, whenever you're listening to us, take care. We'll see you here next time. That's it.